Welcome to the Science of Self, where you learn to improve your life from the inside out. Today is October 5th, 2023. You can combine a couple holidays today by doing something nice for one of your favorite teachers. It's also National Apple Betty Day, so dessert is taken care of for today. Peter Holland's book, Richard Feynman's Mental Models, is the source for today's episode. Rather than just copying someone else's mental models, our emphasis for today is how to create your own mental model. Thanks for joining us. One day, my high school physics teacher, Mr. Bader, told me to stay after class. Feynman, he said, you talk too much, and you make too much noise. I know why. You're bored, so I'm going to give you a book. You go up there in the back, in the corner, and study this book. And when you know everything that's in this book, you can talk again. So, every physics class, I paid no attention to what was going on with Pascal's Law or whatever they were doing. I was up in the back with this book, Advanced Calculus by Woods. Bader knew I'd studied calculus for the practical man a little bit, so he gave me the real works. It was for a junior or senior course in college. It had Fourier series, Bessel functions, determinants, elliptical functions, all kinds of wonderful stuff that I didn't know anything about. That book also showed me how to differentiate parameters under the integral sign. It's a certain operation. It turns out that's not taught very much in the universities. They don't emphasize it. But I caught on on how to use that method, and I used that one damn tool again and again. So because I was self-taught using that book, I had peculiar methods of doing integrals. The results was when the guys at MIT or Princeton had trouble doing a certain integral, it was because they couldn't do it with the standard methods they had learned in school. If it was a contour integration, they would have found it. If it was a simple series expansion, they would have found it. Then I come along and try differentiating under the integral sign, and often it worked. So I got a great reputation for doing integrals, only because my box of tools was different from everybody else's, and they had tried all their tools on it before giving the problem to me. Richard Feynman, surely you're joking, Mr. Feynman. Scientists love models. A model is a map of reality. It's a scaled-down representation of something out there in the world. A map, for example, is itself a model of the terrain it's describing. It's not the same thing as the landscape, and has been greatly simplified, but it really helps in navigating that real landscape when you're in it. The picture you have in your head right now of what an atom looks like is not really what an atom looks like. It's a model invented by Niels Bohr. A computer simulation of evolution or the economy are both models, as are mathematical representations of certain physical phenomena. Established scientific theories come to depend on well-known conventional models that become a part of culture, but Feynman shows that each of us can also have our own mental models, i.e., 
perspectives, and points of view. Feynman's strategy of differentiating under the integral sign was a mental model that he had in his toolbox that was missing in the toolboxes of his peers. The result was that he could sometimes solve problems they couldn't. It's not that Feynman was a super smart genius who could use the same tool better. Rather, he had another different tool. Even better, he knew when and how to switch tools to best tackle the task in front of him. This is the power of mental models and why it's so important to consciously choose the ones you're using. The Law of the Instrument Author Abraham Kaplan describes what he calls the law of the instrument. Give a small boy a hammer, and he'll find that everything he encounters needs pounding. This is not unlike the old proverb that says that when all you have is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. The implication is obvious. If you only have one framework through which to view the world, you will find that every problem you encounter seems to fit into the framework somehow. The world will narrow to fit your limited conception of it. And as Feynman described, if you simply never occupy a certain mental framework, you may live forever without knowing what a certain problem might have looked like through that lens. Every model is a simplification. It crunches reality down so we can more readily manage it. But this is not a problem, so long as we're aware of the limits of the models we're using. We need to always be cognizant of the fact that we are using mental models in the first place, that these models are, by their nature, limited, and that we can always abandon our model for another one if it serves our needs better. Remember the paradox of expertise. It may be that the deeper into one field our expertise grows, the more at risk you are of confusing the map for the territory, or assuming that your particular skill set is the answer to every problem you encounter. You apply it to everything. Confirmation bias allows you to remember all the times it works, so your assumptions get further entrenched, and when it doesn't work, you conclude the problem is unsolvable. In other words, you have a hammer, and you go around bashing everything. One day you're challenged to do open-heart surgery, but you'll kill the patient with your hammer and then say sadly, well, you can't save everyone. There are limits to what medical science can do. Your mistake is to think that your model equals medical science. Your mistake was not to have a range of different tools at your disposal. Here, tools does not mean a flashy new app or gadget, an updated theory, or a machine that can do more than you can. This is just more of the same. A little like becoming really, really good at using a hammer. What you want to do is look beyond the hammer entirely, not just inventing literal new tools, but theoretical and philosophical frameworks that spawn the very idea of those new tools in the first place. In the movie inspired by the life of the mathematician John Nash, A Beautiful Mind, Nash is attempting to hold a lecture while construction workers are making a noise outside. Nash closes the windows but the students complain of getting hot. One of the students then gets up to open the window and politely asks the workers to take a break until the class is over. Nash then says, Well, as you'll find with multivariate analysis, 
there are a number of solutions to any given problem. Regardless of how accurately the movie depicts mathematical genius, probably not very well, the point is neatly made. One way of looking at the problem is to imagine it mathematically. The window can be opened or closed, and there are two distinct problems with each possibility. But this either-or mental model is not the only one we can use. The student shows that there is another one, where the construction workers outside are not taken as a fixed variable. What's more, the solution of the mathematician, close the window, get hot, is not necessarily the solution of someone with better social skills. Negotiate and cooperate. The question of whether the window should be open or closed is most satisfactorily resolved when one relinquishes the mental model that says that open and noisy versus closed and hot are the only options possible. How to Develop Better Mental Models Developing good mental models is not the same as refining your personal worldview or arriving at a workable philosophy for life that you're happy with. Rather, it's about learning to use your own brain as the primary instrument and reminding yourself, constantly, that the best way to think is the way that allows you to best understand what you are seeking to understand. Many people are surprised to learn that the idea of an ecosystem is just a model and not truly the way that the natural world works. Likewise, most things that are taught in high school physics is a model, not actually what is happening. To develop your ability to use and create better models, try the following. Expose yourself to a variety of ideas. The key is variety. Read things that are not on the ordinary prescribed reading list. If you process only that information that everyone else processes, you'll end up with a mental model much like theirs. Read little-known material within your field, but also read material from other fields. Try to expand the depth and breadth of what you consider your field in the first place. If you're studying science, study also the history and philosophy of science. Look at how your topics of interest overlap with other disciplines, with politics, with culture, and over time. Always connect. Your brain is a pattern-finding machine. Every time you learn something new, ask how it fits into the web of meaning you already have. Look for links and connections, though don't force them. Switch your perspective and look at the same problem through another expert's eyes. What did they see that you didn't notice before? Intelligent people are always cross-referencing ideas this way, but it's something you can teach yourself to do. The real world is not like school where each subject is cut into neat separate chunks. Everything is happening all at once. Cultivate Metacognition Get into the habit of thinking about your thinking. Ask questions about the questions you're asking. Think about Feynman's response to the question about magnets. He didn't just talk about magnets on the level the question was asked. He pointed to the different ways one might look at magnets and the different ways one might evaluate those ways. He pointed to the act of questioning itself as an object for deeper understanding. To the degree that you can think reflexively in this way, 
you'll be able to think in, under, around, about, without, and outside the box, and spare yourself from becoming one of those people who don't know they're in a box at all. Consider this admittedly simplified example. Johnny has come to make the following observation. Every time he drinks a single alcoholic drink, he feels completely and utterly ruined. He gets a fearsome headache, he feels on the brink of fainting, and it takes him two days to recover. He starts with the natural question, why? You might have a few suggestions after making the same observation, but from within Johnny's map of the world, he comes to this conclusion. You're becoming very healthy and strong, and that means your body is more intolerant to toxins and poisons than ever before. This is a good thing. Johnny goes a bit further and starts to frame his alcohol intolerance as a subtle sign of his moral and spiritual development, too. It's as though the very cells of his body are rejecting what is bad. But Johnny could have thought about the problem in many different ways. He could have asked, why can't I process alcohol? And then investigated the properties of alcohol itself, trying to deduce its effect on him. Or he could have concluded that there was a psychological reason. Perhaps some deep, unconscious guilt and shame around alcohol and what it represents. And his intolerance is really a psychosomatic manifestation of his unresolved anger at his father, an alcoholic. Perhaps he becomes curious about his belief that there is a problem at all. Is the issue that he's only perceiving that he is unwell after alcohol but isn't in reality? Or perhaps he takes a completely different approach again and says that his inability to tolerate alcohol is a sign that his body is weak and the only way forward is to toughen up a bit and drink more regularly and on and on. One day, purely by accident, a blood test reveals that Johnny has a very common and harmless genetic mutation that means his liver doesn't process alcohol quite as efficiently as normal, and this is why alcohol is especially hard on his system. He realizes all at once that he never considered this pretty obvious mental model, the medical one. Now the question is, which mental model was the right one? In Johnny's case, the problem is an arbitrary one, and he can solve it without necessarily understanding why it happens, i.e., just stop drinking alcohol. In this case, it doesn't really matter which mental model he uses. But if the substance was not alcohol, but instead some common food item that he was deathly allergic to, then it definitely wouldn't matter which model he used, since it would heavily inform how he chose to solve the problem. Get into the habit of stepping back, looking at your mental models as tools, and asking yourself, is this way of thinking actually helping me understand the problem? Is this really useful? Once you've done that, you can begin to ask, if this doesn't help, then what kind of mental model would? How do I have to think if I wish to understand what's in front of me? It's only then that things start to get interesting. Science is a form of imagination. Perhaps you've had the opportunity to watch two very intelligent people talk. If one is trying to explain something to the other, you might see that they say things like, 
Imagine this salt shaker is a three-dimensional object, right? But this napkin we'll call a field, and we'll put the salt shaker here. Now, if this fork represents gravity, when describing things that are unknown, it is inevitable that you need to rely on the language, images, and ideas of the known. In other words, you use metaphor, symbolism, and analogy. All of these can be thought of as the language of model making and the practice of the scientific imagination. Of course, as we've noted before, we should avoid the danger of confusing our analogy with reality. In the Lankavatara, a 3rd or 4th century Mahayana Buddhist sutra, there's a passage that reads, Be not like the one who looks at the fingertip. For instance, Mahamati, when a man with his fingertip points at something to somebody, the fingertip may be taken wrongly for the thing pointed at. In like manner, Mahamati, the people belonging to the class of the ignorant and the simple-minded, like those of a childish group, are unable, even unto their own death, to abandon the idea that in the fingertip of words there is the meaning itself, and will not grasp ultimate reality because of their intent clinging to words which are no more than the fingertip to them. So, bearing in mind that if we wish to point to something, we'll need our fingers, words, models, analogies, metaphors, symbols, we must nevertheless not get too fixated on the finger and keep focusing on the thing to which it's pointing. With that caveat, let's look at what Feynman had to say about analogies, especially when it came to communication and teaching, which from his point of view, amount to pretty much the same thing. In a filmed 1985 interview from the BBC's Fun to Imagine, Feynman once likened science itself to chess. One way that's kind of a fun analogy to try to get some idea of what we're doing here to try to understand nature is to imagine that the gods are playing some great game like chess, and you don't know the rules of the game, but you're allowed to look at the board from time to time, in a little corner, perhaps, and from these observations, you try to figure out what the rules are of the game. What are the rules of the pieces moving? You might discover after a bit, for example, that when there's only one bishop around on the board, that the bishop maintains its color. Later on, you might discover the law for the bishop is that it moves on a diagonal, which would explain the law that you understood before, that it maintains its color. And that would be analogous to us discovering one law and later finding a deeper understanding of it. Ah, then things can happen. All of a sudden, some strange phenomenon occurs in some corner. So you begin to investigate that, to look for it. It's castling, something you didn't expect. We're always, by the way, in fundamental physics, always trying to investigate those things in which we don't understand the conclusions. The thing that doesn't fit is the thing that's most interesting, the part that doesn't go according to what you'd expect. Also, we can have revolutions in physics. After you've noticed that the bishops maintain their color and that they go along the diagonals and so on for such a long time and 
Everybody knows that that's true. Then, you suddenly discover one day in some chess game that the bishop doesn't maintain its color. It changes its color. Only later did you discover the new possibility that the bishop is captured and that a pawn went all the way down to the queen's end to produce a new bishop. That could happen, but you didn't know it. With that simple analogy, he was able to elucidate the entire history of scientific evolution, of the way the science progresses over time, and the deeper underlying worldview that informs scientists' approach to studying the world. He took something that people knew, chess, to describe something they didn't, science's overarching orientation towards nature, and connected them so that people could transfer their understanding from one to the other. In other words, so they could learn. Feynman was noted as a brilliant communicator, when many physicists are known to be precisely the opposite, for a few reasons. One, he was enthusiastic and genuinely had a passion for his work. This inspired and excited others. His wonder and awe at the world was infectious and made others see the magic in even the most ordinary phenomena. Watch any Feynman interview or lecture, and you never get the sense that he's bored of anything. Compared to the sense of tedium that many science educators bring to their material, it's no wonder this gave him such an edge. Two, he was able to use analogy and use it wisely. Feynman was not an intellectual snob, and he met people where they were. If someone knew nothing of what he was talking about, he didn't assume they never could understand. Rather, he figured out what language they spoke and addressed them accordingly. This ability to use whatever tool will work is precisely what makes him a good scientist. Theoretical physicists work in strange realms. Their world is mathematical, abstract, and probabilistic. They understand the value of converting these sometimes bizarre findings into more intuitive and concrete metaphors to better convey them to, well, the people who live in the real world. Three, he was able to make science human. He used stories, narratives, and emotional appeals to make people care about what he was saying. Science is not some dead, neutral thing. Rather, curiosity and the thirst to understand is a deeply intimate human experience that digs right into the most poignant questions of life. To acknowledge this human element, rather than dryly dismiss it, makes science something that belongs to everyone. 4. Finally, as we've already seen, Feynman was good at not letting ego get in the way. The technical term may be vibration, but if he can make the point more quickly by saying jiggling, then there isn't a reason not to. Let go of stiff, inaccessible language. It may be right and make you feel like an expert, but it's useless if it communicates little other than your superiority. Language is there for the using. It's allowed to be colorful and eccentric, especially if that eccentricity breaks apart stale old conceptions and invites real genuine insight. How to make your own analogies. 
analogies can help anytime you want to communicate what you know, teach someone something they don't understand, or perhaps best of all, teach something to yourself so that you understand it better. The good news is that analogy making comes naturally to human beings. That said, there are some steps to follow to be more deliberate in your creation of high-quality analogies. Step 1. Figure out the property or characteristic you're most trying to convey about a particular domain. Let's say you're Feynman and want to explain to a group of lay people how the human eye experiences and processes light waves. It's an extremely complex concept. But he starts by homing in on the property he most wants to communicate, the fact that waves are experienced in a particular way when you are immersed in them, and that you can infer characteristics about the entire wave's motion by experiencing it in just one point. Step 2. Find something concrete and ordinary to map this characteristic onto. You are probably already so used to thinking of sound or light waves as water waves, because scientists have been pointing to this analogy for centuries. So you draw on this association and say that light waves behave similarly to waves in a pool of water. Now... How do you communicate the above characteristic? Feynman once said that you could imagine a little fly floating on the water. The fly would bob up and down as the waves passed over it. This bobbing up and down would be its experience of the wave. But if it was a smart fly, it could gather all this data and begin to make a theory about what the waves were and where they were coming from, even if, being so small, it couldn't gain a bigger picture. Feynman went on to explain that this is precisely what the eye does when light waves enter it. The eyes detect the stimulus, analogous to bobbing up and down, and the brain pieces the data together to create a mental map of where they're coming from. In this way, the brain constructs an internal model of the visible world around it. It's the same as the fly coming to understand the waves that are moving it up and down. Step 3. Adjust or discard your analogy if it isn't working. Your analogy's success will depend on the quality of the relationship between the two things you are comparing. If you're trying to describe light waves hitting the eye using an analogy of an octopus and a supermarket buying cantaloupes, your listeners will exhaust all their brain power just trying to guess how the two things fit together. Be aware, as well, that an analogy is limited. It is highlighting just a single aspect of relationship or similarity. In this example, the wave-like characteristic of both water waves and light waves is relevant. Other properties are not. In this example... A fly has very little in common with a human eye, other than the fact of it intelligently processing data. If your listener or student is hung up on the idea of a fly, then forget the fly and choose something else. Other interesting science metaphors and analogies you might find helpful? Look closely and see if you can identify the single characteristic that's being highlighted and the exact relationship between the things being compared.
The atom is like a tiny solar system. Naturally, this analogy is useless if the person hearing it doesn't know what a solar system is. The spread of an infectious disease is like the spread of a wildfire. Only a small spark is needed, but if enough fuel is encountered, the spread could be exponential. Receiving a fecal transplant is a little like sowing wildflower seeds into bare soil. Taking a probiotic supplement to boost the gut microbiome is like pouring a bucket of water into the ocean to boost sea levels. A proper science lesson is like an enzyme. It instigates changes in the student's mind akin to a chemical reaction by using a device, such as an allergy, to speed up and trigger that reaction. But the understanding was always something the student was capable of, and the raw material was always there. The teacher device, just like a catalyst, remains unchanged. Metabolism is like an engine. Determining redshift by spectroscopy is a bit like identifying a fingerprint on a balloon that has been stretched. Note, this analogy is so good that you probably understand the concept being explained, even though you don't know what redshift or spectroscopy is. How to Teach Like Feynman Perhaps you read the title of this section and thought, well, this bit probably doesn't apply to me since I'm not a teacher. But even if you aren't, hopefully, by the end of this section, you'll see that teaching is a life skill that all of us need to master, whether we are formally called teachers or not. Knowing how to teach means you know how to communicate, and we can only communicate to the limits of our own understanding. Therefore, teaching can help other people shine light on their own blind spots and remove them. But it can also be the one thing that lets us see our blind spots and overcome them in the same way. The Protégé Effect The Protégé Effect is simply when teaching, or even pretending to teach, or preparing to teach, helps us understand our material in a deeper and more insightful way. Teachers and lecturers have, for years, recommended that their students study and prepare for exams by pretending to teach a fellow student. Not only does this drill and reinforce the material they need to know, it also quickly highlights gaps in understanding or areas where the illusion of understanding is replacing genuine understanding. Teaching can improve the way your brain processes material and improve your ability to self-regulate as you work through problems and expecting to teach improves your recall and enhances the way you organize material as you learn it. When you teach, even if this teaching is just phony and you never actually have to explain anything to someone else, you are creating an entirely different learning experience, one where you may feel more control, more autonomy, more clarity, and more motivation. When you teach, you're constantly putting yourself in the mind of the student, beginner's mind, if you will, and this routinely reminds you to slow down, ask what you know, and work through problems methodically. 
Sometimes we can fail to really engage with material because we wrongly think that we already have it in the bag. We study it, but our brains are actually turned off, and we're merely going through the motions. If you imagine you're teaching, however, you temporarily adopt the mindset of someone who is approaching the material for the first time. That means you're not so complacent, not so easily able to fall into rote habit or blind spots. How do you take advantage of the protege effect in your own life and learning? Tip one, you don't have to literally teach someone. It's enough to simply imagine that you are teaching them or need to prepare some materials in order to teach them. If you have a willing participant, by all means, try to explain what you're learning to them. It will certainly be helpful, but you can achieve the same effect by delivering a lecture to nobody in particular. Or, if you like, teach a row of stuffed toys, or draw a face on your notebook and talk to that. It's silly, but it will help. The main thing is that you approach and digest the material as though you would be required to share it with someone else later. It may even help to imagine that this person is less knowledgeable than yourself, so you're forced to come up with your own simplified paraphrasing, novel analogies, and answers to anticipated questions. Tip 2. Imagine a universal student. What can you imagine would be most tricky for people to understand? How might they phrase their questions? Imagine yourself answering this question, and then imagine that the student isn't actually satisfied with this. Try to imagine the nature of their concerns and confusions and how you might address them. Remember that we can often fool ourselves into thinking that we have knowledge about something or that our model actually has some explanatory power. But by imagining a challenging student, we poke at our own potentially circular arguments or lazy definitions. The simplest way to do this is to conjure in your mind's eye a student who won't stop asking, but why? In time, you might find that you internalize this universal student and have many dialogues with yourself as you're working methodically through a problem. But why do I keep coming up with the wrong answer? Well, let's take a closer look. When did the calculation start to go wrong? I'm not sure. Maybe this line here. What am I really saying in this line? Let me see if I can find any assumptions I've made that might be wrong. In this way, you become your own teacher, because you've completely internalized the powerful and generative teacher-student dynamic as your own. Tip 3. Invite and engage with feedback. This teacher-student dialogue is so useful because it is a living, breathing conversation. It's a dialectic, and in the to and fro, the student, and often the teacher too, moves from ignorance to understanding. In a way, it's not different from Socratic dialogue, which frames the discovery of knowledge as a joint conversation that arrives at sound conclusions step by step. One underrated way of building this sense of dialogue is through feedback. Sadly, conventional educational approaches focus heavily on achievement 
and tend to use feedback as a way to score and rank a student rather than to merely elucidate a path forward on their learning. This means that most of us are fairly resistant to receiving feedback because we see it as criticism, an attack, or a humiliation. This is a pity because feedback is extremely useful. A good teacher will regularly respond to a student by telling them the effect their efforts are having, things they may be overlooking, or hints for how to master what they are struggling with. If a scientist hopes to truly understand the mechanism of the scientific method, having their hypothesis rejected or not, they must first be comfortable with the trial-and-error nature of learning, i.e., sometimes you will make an error. Do not be afraid of feedback. Identify the smartest, most competent people you know and be courageous enough to ask for their input. Don't try to always be the smartest person in the room. You'll learn best if everyone around you knows more than you do. Remember, the point is not to be ranking and rating yourself or making comparisons. Instead, you are seeking information about the quality of your approach, the usefulness of your question, the soundness of your method. How to Explain Anything to Anyone Some smart people leave others completely baffled. When they talk, it's as though they're speaking another language. You have no doubt they're very clever. But what on earth do they mean? Feynman wasn't one of those people. For him, being able to teach others wasn't some nice side effect of his own understanding. He saw his ability to clearly articulate what he knew to be instrumental in him knowing it. Many people assume that if something is very smart and important, only a few people will be able to understand it. Feynman turned this on its head. Anyone can understand anything, if it's pitched at the right level, and if you can't explain it so they understand, it's not because the material's too complex. It's because you don't have a thorough enough grasp on it. Let's take a look at the IRAID method, which is a multi-pronged approach used in physics education. It was inspired in part by Feynman's words. The best way to teach is to be very chaotic in the sense that you use every possible way of doing it. Imagine the concept you're trying to teach is revealed to the student in separate snapshots. The greater the number of snapshots, and from the greatest number of different angles, the more fully they can see the concept. I is for introduce. Use narrative and story to begin. Give some context and explain why you're learning the concept and how your particular learning fits into the bigger scheme. How might it connect to what you already know? And how does it help you achieve what you're trying to achieve? If you're a good teacher, you can use story, humor, and emotion to pique interest and make the concept seem relevant. Feynman himself was famous for getting even science phobes to admit, that does sound pretty fascinating now that you mention it. You can also begin with the dictionary definition of the terms you'll be using to get acquainted with the topic and find your footing.
R is for relate. Next, show what the concept is by giving real-world examples. Give at least three if you can. If you start abstract and end abstract, it's difficult for anyone to see how it connects to the real world in any way, especially when it comes to physics, but also with other more abstract topics. You need to stay grounded in why the concept matters at all. A is for apply. There is, hopefully, some practical application to what you're learning about. The method or idea or theory is a tool. What things does it help you achieve out there in the world? If it's a mathematical formula, show how this tool can be used to literally work your way through some problems. You might like to connect the examples you gave to classical problems and then show how the new knowledge solves those problems. Again, you're embedding this new knowledge in a pragmatic way. Accept questions and get the students to try their hand, too. Work through a range of practical applications, from easy to difficult, so that the students see the principle in action rather than just hear you talk about it. D is for demonstrate. This is connected to the earlier point. Visual demonstrations can be really powerful. Students always remember the cool, hands-on experiments in class over the dry and dull lessons from textbooks. As with writing, show, don't tell. You could recreate a mini-experiment or set up a demonstration that shows the principle at work. A picture paints a thousand words. A real-life demonstration paints a thousand pictures. E is for examine. You want to test that what you've transmitted has been received. It doesn't have to be a formal exam or even a pop quiz. Just make sure that you're giving the student the opportunity to reflect on what they've learned. Keeping the protege effect in mind, ask them to teach back to you what you've just taught them. Then, listen carefully. The places they struggle with or get confused are the areas you need to revisit. The questions students ask you can also reveal a lot about how much they've absorbed. Get them to paraphrase, make summaries, or debate the concept to show they understand the underlying themes, or, more classically, give them a problem of the type you've covered in the examples and demonstrations and see if they know what to do. To make sure they really understand, however, don't just rely on them regurgitating the right words. One great way to test comprehension is to show them a problem solved incorrectly or a wrong answer. Get them to tell you why it's wrong. Summary A model is a map of reality and a scaled-down, simplified representation of something in the world. Feynman's genius rested on the power of his mental models and maps of reality and his ability to switch between them. Kaplan's Law of the Instrument says that when all you have is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. To better solve problems, have more tools in your inventory, and become better at choosing which one to use when. 
Developing good mental models is not the same as refining your personal worldview or philosophy. It's about learning to use your own brain as your primary instrument and use worldviews as secondary instruments. To develop better models, expose yourself to a range of ideas, constantly seek to connect different ideas, and cultivate metacognition. Science is a form of imagination that uses language, imagery, metaphor, symbolism, and analogy to engage with reality. We can understand more by connecting the unknown to the known, but without getting confused about what is finger and what is moon. The protege effect is simply when teaching, or even pretending to teach or preparing to teach, helps us understand our material in a deeper and more insightful way. Use simplified, ordinary language, get your ego out of the way, and teach someone else or yourself to get to the heart of a concept. The IRADE method is an approach used in physics education, and it stands for Introduced, Relate, Apply, Demonstrate, and Examine. It can help you not only teach and learn, but communicate your ideas more clearly. And that concludes today's episode. We hope to join us next Thursday for another episode from The Science of Self. On the birthday list today, we have an interesting list. We have Bernie Mac, Kate Winslet, Neil deGrasse Tyson, the physicist and author, Travis Kelsey, the football player, as well as Charlton Heston. It's a day for actors, for sure. Way back in 1957, Russia launched Sputnik, the first artificial satellite. And even further back, 1883, the Orient Express makes its first run from Paris to Romania. But have I been told we can't call it the Orient Express anymore? On this day in 1970, Janis Joplin passed away. And 300 years before that, Rembrandt dies. We leave you today with a short quote from Janis Joplin. Don't compromise yourself. You're all you've got. <laughs>